I don't know about you, but I have enjoyed over the course of this series interacting with Scripture, particularly these Psalms, in that manner. Uh, we have no idea what they would have sounded like when people sang them at the temple or in their homes, uh, but it's neat to, to take modern contemporary versions of those psalms and, and engage with them in song as they are intended to be engaged with. Today we're going to continue with Psalm 51. This is uh, our fifth psalm here in this series, and it is all about repentance. There are seven psalms in the Psalter that are repentance-specific, and this is probably the most famous of those. And one of the things that makes Psalm 51 a little bit unique is that it actually has a significant pretext to the psalm. You can find on the beginning of most of these psalms, before verse 1, there's some sort of instruction to the the choir master or the director. Sometimes it says, this one has a little bit more than that, and it's worth taking a look at. Before verse 1 in Psalm 51, it says this, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. We get a very specific indicator of what circumstances gave rise to this particular psalm. And it's, we're told, it was written shortly after the incident between David and Bathsheba. And so it's important that we are on equal footing with exactly what happened in that story. There are some here who may not uh, be familiar with it. And so you can find it in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. You can write that down if you want. I'm just going to summarize it for us this morning. What takes place is that David, of David and Goliath fame, if you will, is walking around on the roof of his palace one afternoon, and he sees some distance away uh, a woman that he finds attractive, Bathsheba. And so he tells his servants to go and to get her. And so they go to her and they bring her over to the palace. And David uh, discovers she's got a husband. His name is Uriah. He's off at war. That apparently uh, matters not at all to David. And so they sleep together and he finds out that she has become pregnant. And so David puts together uh, a quick cover-up to his sin, and he decides, I'll have Uriah come back from battle, and that way he'll come home, and they'll sleep together, and we can just write this whole thing off as if it never happened. And so he sends for Uriah, and Uriah comes back to the city, and what you find out is that Uriah's integrity is such that he refuses to go home and sleep with his wife while the rest of his uh, buddies in the army are off at war. And so instead, he sleeps uh, kind of at the, basically the entrance to the palace there with the rest of David's servants. And so David, uh, frustrated, says, all right, Uriah, stay here another night um, before you go back to the, to the battle lines. And this time, David gets Uriah drunk and thinks in his drunkenness, Uriah will go home, he'll forget, and he'll go home and sleep with his wife. Unfortunately, that's not what happens. And so David, uh, the next day, sends Uriah back to the front lines of the battle, carrying his own orders for his death. And he writes to, to Uriah's commander, put Uriah where the fighting is the fiercest, and at the peak of that, withdraw the army and leave him stranded so that he is killed. And that's exactly what happens. And David gets the report back that Uriah has died in battle. He takes Bathsheba as his wife. And you get to the end of that story in the end of chapter 11, 2 Samuel chapter 11, and there's this little line. 
but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. You don't say. (laughs) That story should displease just about everybody. And so what God does is that he sends a prophet to David named Nathan. And Nathan shows up there at the palace and he tells David a story, a parable, essentially. It's recorded there in 2 Samuel 12. Nathan says, David, I want you to pretend that there's a really rich man who's got tons of sheep. And there's a poor man who's got one sheep that he's had since it was a little, a little baby. And he's raised it and he's cared for it and they sleep together, literally. They're, the bond is that close. And a traveler comes to visit the rich man. And while he's there, the rich man decides to prepare him dinner. But instead of taking one of his own sheep, he summons the poor man and takes the sheep from him and slaughters it and serves dinner for the guest. How do you feel about that, David? And this is what David says. As sure as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold. To which Nathan, without skipping a beat, says, you are that guy, David. You've been given everything. The blessings of the Lord upon your life are beyond what anyone else on the face of the planet has. And you not only took Uriah's life, you then took Uriah's life. It's in that moment, that set of circumstances, that David writes Psalm 51. It's hard, you know, we don't know if it's literally he sat down and this is what bubbled out of his heart or if it was a a day or a week or a month later as he's reflecting back on this whole encounter. But he writes Psalm 51 out of that moment. And so what we're going to see today is what does it look like to respond to the Lord in the midst of our sin? What does it look like to worship him when we have just totally blown it? And so the main takeaway this morning is going to be this. When we've sinned, worshiping God means coming before Him in repentance. I just want to read to you all of Psalm 51. It's 19 verses long. Here's what it says. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God." And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, in whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. What does it look like to worship the Lord in the midst of our sin? 
It looks like coming before him in repentance. And just so we all start uh, at the same place, a good definition for repentance is the one offered by Wayne Grudem. He says this. He says that repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. Maybe in more common terms, repentance is knowing your sin, detesting your sin, and walking away from your sin toward Christ. You know it, you hate it, and you long to walk away from it. And so instead, you turn and you walk to Christ. We mentioned at the beginning of this series that sometimes, due to the poetic nature of Psalms, it makes sense to kind of work with them thematically rather than straight, just verse by verse. Sometimes, in their artistic expression, uh, things are kind of grouped together in different places. And so we're going to walk through what it looks like to repent. Not necessarily to repent in a salvific sense where we recognize sin in general and that Christ gave his life on the cross so that we might have forgiveness for our sins. And if we put our faith in that, then his blood covers us and we'll spend eternity in the presence of a holy and righteous God. We're going to talk about what it looks like as a believer to repent in the midst of our ongoing sin struggles. And we're going to just work our way through this psalm and see what it has to say. The first place I want to direct your attention is Psalm 51, verses 3 through 6. Step one in repenting is to recognize and acknowledge the true sinfulness of our sin. In those four verses, verses three through six, David uses three different words to talk about his sin. He calls it transgression. He calls it sin. He calls it iniquity. But he makes a powerful statement there in verse four. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. The true sinfulness of sin is that it's transgression against God. What David has done to Uriah, what the pain that David has caused Bathsheba, isn't to be glossed over. It's not to be ignored or pretend that it doesn't exist. But the true reality of sin is that David has transgressed the law of the Lord, the holy and righteous law of God. The beginning point of repentance is for us to acknowledge that. And oftentimes we short-circuit it in a few ways. I want to give those to you this morning. I think the first way that we uh, shortcut or bypass this understanding is that we mistake sorrow over getting caught for sorrow over having sinned. There's a significant difference between those two things. I've used this illustration before, but you can probably remember back to when you were a teenager, or maybe you have teenagers, and you had broken the law in your house a few times. And, and at some point, it just got to the place where your parents sat you down afterward and they said, we're not mad. We're disappointed. And you thought to yourself, I wish you would scream at me right now. It would be better for you to just be mad at me than to tell me that you're disappointed. It would be better for you to just be angry and yelling and ground me for a little while than to tell me that I have just grieved you. That's the difference between being sad over being caught and being sad over having sinned. Oftentimes, even in the midst of our sin, when it's confronted by someone outside of us, we kind of think to ourselves, like when our parents would yell at us, I think I could have done this differently and not gotten caught. I think I could have done this in such a way as to have this not have been exposed. 
and we're just upset that our pride is now hurt and everybody knows that we've sinned. We're not really broken over the fact that we've grieved the heart of the Lord. There's a significant difference there. Secondarily, oftentimes we mistake sorrow over having hurt people around us for sorrow over having sinned. Our sin, like David's, undoubtedly creates hurt and pain for the people around us. In fact, oftentimes it creates hurt and pain for the people closest to us. There's no mistaking that. There's no glossing over it. When David says against you and you alone have I sinned, he's not saying that there aren't ramifications in the lives of the people around him. He's not saying that there aren't worldly consequences because of his sin, but he's recognizing the fact that the pain that I've caused the people around me is not the primary issue. The primary issue in my heart and in my soul is that I've broken your law, Lord. The real world consequences of sin have to be dealt with. And sometimes the reality is that we can't ever make it right. Sometimes we've hurt someone so badly that no amount of time, no amount of apologizing is going to put everything back right. David can't bring Uriah back from the dead here. He's done irreparable damage to someone's life. It's not to be ignored. But in order to truly begin the process of repentance, we have to see that our sin, first and foremost, has hurt the heart of the Lord. William Plumer, a commenter, says this, All sin is against God in the sense that it is His law that is broken, His authority that we despise. Third, we can try to shortcut or bypass this step in the process by only ever thinking of God as all love, all grace, all mercy, and never thinking of God as perfectly holy, perfectly just, and infinitely wrathful towards sin. The reality is that he is both of those things to total perfection. They exist absolutely, perfectly alongside one another. When we do this, we unintentionally allow ourselves to believe that God is ambivalent or apathetic toward our sin. Well, he's just loving and merciful and gracious, and because of that, and because my sin's forgiven at the cross, it means he doesn't care. That's what we unintentionally allow ourselves to think, and the reality is that simply isn't true. If you need a reminder of the reality of how God feels about sin, take a cursory look through the Old Testament. I mean, he once flooded the entire world because of how much he hates sin. He once destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because of how much he hates sin. He once exiled his chosen people out of the city that he had promised for them because of how much he hates sin. Take a flip into the first few pages of the New Testament. He once put his son on the cross because of how much he hates sin. Of all the judgments poured out in all of the Bible in response to sin, the greatest of those is Christ on the cross. And in that is the perfect display of all of God's wrath and holiness and justice and all of God's love and grace and mercy. They exist together in totality right alongside each other. Oftentimes, we're never grieved over our sin because we don't ever allow ourselves to think that Jesus Christ dying on the cross is a result of my sin. 
There's a song we sing here oftentimes whose lyrics say, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. He's holy and righteous and just, and he's wrathful towards sin. And we we can see that in the work of Christ on the cross. And praise the Lord, he's also loving and gracious and merciful. We've got to hold both of those together. By the time you get through Psalm 51, it's evident that David's soul is deeply aware of his sin and its offense to God. And that's the beginning place for repentance in the life of a believer. The second is this. Recognize and acknowledge the mercy of God. After fully understanding the sinfulness of our sin, we have to turn to him. And in David doing so, he relies on two characteristics of the quality of God. The first is God's mercy. He prays, have mercy on me, O God. David is asking for the exact opposite of what he deserves. That's what mercy is. It's not getting what you've earned yourself. He's literally just casting himself upon the fact that God is merciful. It's his only hope. He understands that to stand before a holy and righteous God in light of what he's just done would lead to him being absolutely, positively crushed. On the 4th of July, I was at a friend's house and we had set up this course around their property and the guys who were there that night were having time trial races on a four-wheeler around the course. Who could do it the fastest? And as the winning time got faster and faster, it meant that every person who got onto the four-wheeler had to be riskier and riskier in order to take the top spot. And so I'm more competitive than I need to be. And so I got onto the four-wheeler for like my third or fourth go-around. And I, my level of comfort was far too high, and it was muddy. And I approached a 90-degree right turn, and I thought I used enough brake, but I didn't. And I realized the four-wheeler is going to flip. And that... If the four-wheeler flips and I'm still on it, at some point I'm going to end up underneath the four-wheeler and that's not going to be good. And so I made a split-second decision to throw myself off of it. And so as the four-wheeler kind of starts to go airborne sideways, I just kind of kicked myself away from it and just prayed, basically, that I would land in a spot that wouldn't end up getting me crushed. That's what David is doing upon the mercy of God here. I'm just casting myself upon the fact that I know you're merciful, God, and praying I don't end up crushed. And he can do so because of the second characteristic of God that he mentions. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. The word there is hesed. Have mercy on me according to your hesed love. It's unfailing. It never gives up. It never runs out. It never goes bad. Even though we will fail the Lord repeatedly, His love will never fail us in return. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ and His work on the cross, you can bank on the fact that when you arrive in heaven, that act on your behalf is going to hold true. The Lord's love, His mercy, His grace is going to hold out for you in that instance. It cannot fail. And so David just throws himself upon those two things. Have mercy. In his helplessness, David turned to the steadfast love and mercy of God. What's amazing, I've remarked upon this a few times as we've gone through this series, is that David knows so much less of the mercy and steadfast love of God than we do on this side of the cross. 
He hasn't seen Jesus on the cross on his behalf like we have. He's putting trust in the mercy and the steadfast love of God in a way that we, we don't quite have to. He's putting his faith in that in a way that we don't quite have to because we've seen Christ on the cross on our behalf. We can look to it and see it. How do I know that God is steadfast in his love and in his mercy? I've seen Jesus on the cross. I know it's there. I know it's never going to be pulled out from underneath me. I can see it. I understand my sin and I'm turning and I'm looking to the cross because that is the picture of God's love and mercy on my behalf. That's the second step in this process of repentance. The third is found in verses 7 through 12. It's this. Recognize and acknowledge that Jesus alone can provide forgiveness for sin. David prays two, two things in here. Verses 7 through 9 say, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. David wants it to be as though his sin has never taken place. That phrase, blot out, is literally like erasing the writing on a piece of paper, as if it was never there in the first place. It's like you just put brand new white carpet into your house. And 15 minutes after the, the installation is done, your son, little Johnny, runs in with mud all over his feet and heads straight through the living room. And you think to yourself, I'm going to do everything I can to make it look like little Johnny doesn't even exist. I'm going to clean this thing so well, it's going to be perfectly white. I'm going to blot out the stain. That's what David is praying for. He says, purge me with hyssop. If you were to go back and read in the book of Leviticus, you would see that if someone had leprosy or there was a disease in a particular house, when they were cleansed of that, what they would have to do is go get the priest and he would come with a bundle of hyssop and he would sprinkle blood over that house, over the doorway of that house, and declare it clean. David says, I want to be declared clean in that sort of way, as if this sin never happened. But then he goes on in verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David not only wants to blot out his sin as if it never happened, he wants to be created completely new. It's like little Johnny ran through there 15 minutes after the carpet got installed. You saw the stain and said, you know what we'll do? We'll just rip it out and put in a new one. I realize we just got this carpet, but we're going to make it brand new. You're just going to take it out and lay something new in there. He says, I want to be made new like that. And I want my newness to endure. Give me a willing spirit, Lord. I don't ever want to return to this sin again, God. Would you clean me as if it never happened? Would you make me new? Old, gone, new has come. And would you give me a spirit that allows that newness to persevere? He wants to be steadfast in his newness, in the same way that God is steadfast in his love for us. Jesus is the only answer to that kind of prayer. The only thing in all of the world that has the ability to blot out our sin is the blood of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And it wasn't just sprinkled over us. It was literally spilt in full at the cross. The only thing that has the ability to place a new heart within us is the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. That's it. There's nothing else. In the midst of our sin, in the midst of an ongoing struggle, it is fantastic to put 
barriers in place to protect us from certain behaviors. It's wonderful to put accountability measures in and those kinds of things, but the only thing that will ever completely solve our sin struggles and enable us to truly walk in repentance away from those things is the power of Jesus Christ, is the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And just as an aside, I do believe very strongly that even for a believer, it's important to ask for this. It's not merely a one-time salvific sort of thing, but confession and repentance is an ongoing act. You're not asking to be saved eternally again. You're asking to be forgiven. And you might say, Tim, I've been forgiven. Jesus forgave me by his work on the cross. I'd say, absolutely. He fully purchased your forgiveness by his work on the cross. But that doesn't replace our asking. In fact, it becomes the basis for it. It gives us confidence that even in the midst of our greatest sin, we can ask the Lord for forgiveness and it will be granted. Verses 13 through 19 paint one final picture for us, and that's that in the midst of our repenting process, we need to recognize and acknowledge that God's forgiving work is now part of our testimony to his gospel. David says in verse 13, then... Once you've renewed my spirit, once you've created in me a clean heart, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Verse 15, then, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. David not only prayed, restore me, he also prayed and allow me to lead others to restoration, God. Many of you here are training and preparing for the world vision uh, either marathon or half marathon, in October. And Lord willing, when you get to the finish line of whatever distance you've chosen to run, they're going to place a medal around your neck. And you're going to be so proud of that thing. And part of it is going to be because you've made it either 13.1 or 26.2 miles on that morning. You went from starting line to finish line. But more so, you're going to be proud of it because you know all the work that's taken place beforehand to get you to that point. When the Lord has done a forgiving work in the life of a believer, we become this medal, this kind of trophy to his grace. We become this visible picture of all that the Lord has done in our life, not just in one act of forgiveness, but in the act of totally and completely forgiving all of our sin. And it should be the response of every single believer to make known that forgiveness to the world. That in the midst of our brokenness, when it was on full display, God could forgive us. We should make known the greatness of the gospel in response to the greatness of our sin. And hopefully there's no one in here who sins to the magnitude that David did in a worldly sense. But in a very real sense, even your smallest sins grieve the Lord. Even the ones that nobody knows about, that are just attitudes or... uh, thoughts that exist within inside you, those grieve the Lord in the same way. And when he does a forgiving work, we should make known that kind of grace and mercy to the world around us so that they can see, even despite the greatness of our sin, that the gospel is greater. Even despite the bigness of the mess that we can get ourselves into, Jesus' work on the cross is bigger and greater. Then, David says, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Open my mouth and my lips will declare your praise. There's a balance 
here, of course, and it's, you can jot this down in your notes. We don't have time to read it. It's Romans 6, 1 to 14. Paul makes it very clear, basically in answering this exact question, well, if that's the case, we should just sin a bunch and allow the Lord to forgive us a bunch, and then we can tell people about him a bunch. He says, absolutely not. We do not sin so that we might be able to display more of God's grace. When we put our faith in Jesus, we died to our sin. And when it crops back up, we deal with it. We deal with it appropriately. We deal with it seriously. We deal with it by repenting. That's what it looks like to respond to the Lord in the midst of our sin. To just come before Him in repentance. One of the beauties of Psalms is that they represent seasons of life. And as we continue to work our way through these, we're going to do four more, five more. They represent seasons of life that aren't just maybe going to come. They represent seasons of life that absolutely will happen in the life of every single believer. And this is one of them. In the event of any sin in the life of a believer, this is the process of repentance. Repenting in the life of a Christian is like 101 level of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. The process should be ongoing in our life. And as we grow and deepen in our relationship with the Lord, we should see ever more the reality of our sin, and it should always lead us to a place of repentance. David prays in verse 12 for the joy of his salvation to be restored. Tim Keller about that verse says this, that the joy of our salvation is found in a heart that remembers how little we deserve and yet how much we have received. When we've sinned, Worshiping God means coming before Him in repentance. It means coming before Him and seeing just how much we've received, despite how little we deserve. I pray that we're a church that takes the repentance process seriously, both for the sake of our own sanctification and for the sake of the growth of the kingdom as we seek to make disciples to the ends of the earth. I'm going to pray for us, uh, and then we'll go. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to come and to worship you. God, I'm... I'm thankful that you are merciful and steadfast in your love. God, I'm thankful that your promises to us are never going to fail. I'm thankful that your love to us is never going to fail. I'm thankful that despite the reality of our sin and the fact that we transgress your law, God, that if we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we're going to stand before you one day completely clean, that sin is going to have been blotted out. We will be white as snow as if it never happened, God. My prayer is that in response to that, we would be a church that recognizes the reality of our sin, that recognizes the work of Christ on our behalf and that forgiveness is only found in Him. God, that we run to You in the act of repentance when we've sinned, God, and that we would allow our lives to be lived in such a way that the greatness of who you are and forgiving our sin would provide testimony to the reality of the gospel to the world around us. God, would you do that work in us as a church? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for being here this morning. Have a great week.